Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Four Degrees to the Streets. Thanks for joining us for episode three. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health and the built environment, specifically with an emphasis on mental health in the Black community. But before we get started, I just want to check in. Jasmine, how are you holding up today? I'm doing good. Uh, Post-Thanksgiving, should have been in the gym all week, but we're here. It's going to move forward. You mean you didn't get a Black Friday workout in? Nah, I didn't. I, I feel like that was a thing this year, though. Like. I mean, it can't save you if you ate over 2,000 calories. Is unless you doing a lot of workout, it's not gonna work off that Thanksgiving meal. Just it make you feel better, if if anything. And mental health is important. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, no, you didn't. Um, but today we're super excited. So we actually have our first guest of the show, um, Christy Holland, who is also based in D.C. Like myself. Um, Christy Holland is a millennial Black planner from South St. Louis, helping Black hustlers and trailblazers like herself get gutted. Her business, Gutted Fitness, helps Black individuals from urban areas make peace with their past, present, and future by providing individuals safe spaces to just be Black. She uses both her master's in policy and urban planning and experience in community outreach and engagement, sales, and marketing to lead thought-provoking conversations and action around self-awareness and evolution, as well as social equity and justice as it relates to redeveloping sustainable and equitable social networks, infrastructure, and institutions, especially for the Black community and culture. And as we mentioned today, we're going to be talking about mental health and the built environment. So we found that there was no better person to bring on to talk about this. When she's not planning cities or developing the next guy to gutted, she's probably walking around a hood, fraternizing with Black locals, doing a twerkout workout in her teeny DC apartment, which I've seen. And you <laughs> You definitely want to tune in for that or watching some gang drama or criminal mastermind shows on a streaming platform. So I'm going to turn it over to Christy to tell us a little bit about herself, her background related to planning um, and her business, Get It Fitness. Hey, y'all. Thank you for having me. So, yes, I mean, like the bio said, I'm just a little girl from um, St. Louis with the country grandma, just trying to create a safe space for black people to just be because I feel like when I was in St. Louis, I couldn't do that. The way the city was designed, I had to just either get it out the mud or I had to just, you know, just conform to what that environment was. But I knew I wanted to play bigger. I knew I wanted more. So I had to figure out how to get out of that thing. Right. Which brought me to gutted fitness. Um, if you look at my bio on the website, like, yes, it was triggered by a breakup. I'm not going to even front you, but <laughs> their breakup kind of unearthed a lot of the traumas that I dealt with coming from St. Louis, from um, everything from the built environment to um, generational narratives about like how you need to move within the city and stuff based on the built environment. And even just, you know, my dealing with my anger, dealing with my frustration and things. So I was like, look, we got to figure out how to make black people happy. <laughs> especially when you're coming from urban environments where they, they built the city 
to make sure that you're not winning, that you're not thriving. So that's why we're here now. Um, I guide people through like how to how to um, redefine like what happiness means for them, um, how to redefine what it means to get money, what it means to be um, fit, what it means to be successful and all of that, but still being true to who you are, still being true to um, the values that you were brought up in with your family, um, the values from your city, you know, if you choose to hold on to that, but then, you know, just defining what your new values are. You may like something completely different from here on out. So that's what I'm trying to do. We'll get it. You know, I don't think there's any shame in it being from, you know, inspired by a breakup as Beyonce said, the best revenge is your paper. <laughs> so look, look, okay. <laughs> get it, get it how you live. Um, so before we head into the episode a little bit more, um, I wanted to give an overview of the built environment and what is a built environment and how that impacts mental health. And the built environment is definitely one of, shamelessly, maybe one of my favorite jargony planning words. Because when you think about the environment, you think about how things naturally occur, whether there's a river, trees, you know, a forest, those are things that you think about in the environment. But what's, what does it mean when it's built? And that means that it's a human-made structure. It's been modified and it's there to provide spaces for people, whether that's living, housing, working, or recreation. And in the planning and social science realm, the built environment can also include utility structures such as water, electricity, roadways, and transportation systems. And when you think about it from a public health perspective, anytime you're adding human or modified structures, it can have a public health impact and it can have an impact on quality of life. So, you know, pretty basically, you know, we all know that, you know, getting exercise and walking and being active is one of the ways to improve your quality of life. And so if a neighborhood or a place is easily walkable or you can bike or take public transit, that can just naturally have a positive impact on your physical health. Or if the built environment allows you to move from place to place to get access to healthy food or green spaces, those can also have impacts on your physical and mental health as well. To dive a little bit more into the positive impacts of the built environment. So what does it mean when the built environment is made well? What does it mean when it works? And so the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, they produced a healthy community design initiative. It no longer exists, unfortunately, but it was a program in the National Center for Environmental Health, um, their, their division of emergency and environmental health services. And so they produced a lot of research and toolkits and guidance for local jurisdictions to see how can they make their built environment more successful when it comes to, when it comes to mental health and physical health. And so some of their main items that they would say is that mixed land use, having sidewalks. And so mixed land use meaning not just having all housing on one side and then you have to cross a bridge or a freeway to get to commercial areas or grocery stores, but having that all in one area where people can access it easily. Um, having public transit as an option, having a choice for grocery stores and farmers markets, also including lights and places to gather. All of those things are ways that planners and other, you know, in other fields, they can make the environment healthy. When you, when you are choosing to build it, you can make it healthy. Another example, as I mentioned before, having physical activity can both prevent and treat depression when we think about mental health. Um, green spaces, you know, that's a place where people wanna gather. It can also just personally alleviate mental fatigue and help restore and have a you know, greater attention span and overall make a more positive impact on your day. And just to wrap up the positive influences, I'll give an example um, for a housing study that took place in South Carolina. This housing study specifically looked at people who were um, defined as 
seriously mentally ill, which means that they had a mental, behavioral, and emotional disorder resulting in a, physical, in a serious functional impairment that interferes with one or more of their major life activities. And so this center specifically was run by a community mental health center, and it provided housing for these individuals after they were released from hospitalized care. And so the study wanted to examine how their housing environment factors looked at, how their housing environment factors had an influence over their mental health and their recovery. And what they found was that the qualities such as traffic, good lighting, sidewalks had more of an impact on how they felt about their mental health and their well-being and their recovery than their own actual apartment itself. And so, you know, they, they one could think, oh, how one's actual space is has a big impact on how they feel about their overall well-being. But they felt that when you take a step back, it's actually the community as itself and the neighborhood that had more of an impact. They also looked at socioeconomic census data, which doesn't have anything to do with the built environment necessarily. It can, it can impact the certain jobs that people have and the access. But when looking at a landscape, you know, we don't see decimal points and statistics as we're looking outside <laughs> that tells you how much money people in the area make. And that was actually found to not be one of the significant parts that made people feel better about their well-being and that aided their recovery as well. Another thing the study found was that the benefits of the housing community when it allowed for social relationships, that was one of the important elements that made the program successful and that led to the most successful programs, the programs with the participants who had better well-being and also the ones that self-reported that their own environment was better due to those factors. So I'm gonna turn it over to talk a little bit more about what does it mean when the built environment doesn't work? And I'm sure by this point, you kind of have some ideas of what that can look like. One of which is poor community design and land use policies. As I mentioned, are things separate? Does it take you 45 minutes to get to the things you need the most, whether that's a grocery store, or if you're me, a target, <laughs> needing, a, needing a quality target nearby is really important. Um, you know, so that, those are things that can make you frustrated in your day-to-day -day life and that just adds stress. And these things didn't just happen overnight. It's a history of disinvestment in certain areas. It's a history of planning that, it's a history of planning that perpetuates sprawl and, um, and, and separating certain groups and segregation that, that add to these things. They didn't necessarily happen by accident. Yeah, Nemo. And that's the point that I think is most critical when you're talking about the built environment versus the natural environment. You mentioned that it's, it's man-made, but part of it being man-made is that humans have an implicit bias. And so when you're a planner, an architect, or a landscape architect, you come to your profession with that bias. And so if you believe that people should use their car to get around and that's, you believe that that's the best way to move around a city, then you will design your city so that you have to use a car to get around. If you believe that parks are not important, then you will design a place to not have as many parks or you won't fund them regularly. Or in thinking about social equity, if you believe that lower income people when they congregate in public spaces lead to crime, then you will try to minimize and disencourage people through a design standpoint from congregating in public spaces. So we call that like hostile infrastructure where you see like a bench, but the bench has like rigs on it so that people without homes can't sleep there. Or you'll see signs in the park that say no loitering. And that's trying to encourage people from being in those spaces. And that is also part of the design of the built environment that contributes negatively to you feeling comfortable moving around a public space. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, especially when you mentioned the bias of the people who are in the positions of power that have a lasting impact. Um, you know, when you think about, you know, when how streets are designed or infrastructure in general, those are long lasting things that they don't, you know, it's, it's one thing to put it in. Sometimes that can take years, but it's a whole other thing to try to change it and change people mi- and change people's mindsets about how spaces should be configured and who they should be configured for and who should have access. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the those are some of the positives, kind of cheery ways that the built environment can work, and times that it doesn't work um, for people. And you know, when it doesn't work, it can add stress, anxiety, um, depression. It can be crowded, noisy, and overall things that affect people in their fight and their and their psychological state um and so the as i mentioned earlier there's you know the broad physical and mental health outcomes um and something that you know we all that we all talked about when we were thinking about this episode is where how do we how do we access you know information about mental health outcomes specifically specifically for black populations and and what does that look like and and how is that data presented does it does it exist um and how and how is it is it easy to find and access you know when i look at some of this data um even though sometimes the data can be kind of telling I feel like these people are just looking at it from a computer they didn't log into gis or something um, they didn't take some medical records, but they never really took the chance to sit down and talk to uh, black people to figure out why y'all, why your blood pressure so high? <laughs> like you didn't ask them what their neighborhood environment was looking like. Um, you may have gotten some plans and stuff, but you just, a lot of the statistics are just saying like, oh, black people are the most stressed out. They're the most depressed. They're the most to use alcohol. Well, duh, you don't, you took away my basketball court. You put in a pool, you know, I'm not swimming. You didn't um, close down my hair shops. Like, of course I'm mad. I'm stressed. I ain't got no money. I'm trying to get it how I can. But you were, you just want to present these statistics as, oh, poor black people. Nah, that ain't the case. Let's go back to this built environment. Like, I understand you want to keep people safe and stuff. You know, the basketball court can get kind of rowdy. People getting their feelings about losing a game. But that's part of building social capital you know that's part of learning how to to deal with people and like building relationships or even just learning how to navigate relationships so when you take stuff like that away you're really taking a piece of the um you're taking away opportunities for people to be happy you're taking away opportunities for people to relieve stress and you're taking away opportunities for people to mingle with each other so that they won't be violent towards each other i hate that black on black crime stuff because if we're gonna gonna talk about it we got to talk about it (laughs) and how the built environment led to that you know what i'm saying I like to see statistics and data put in context because without that context, it does, like you said, Chrissy, make it seem like Black people are the worst thing in the world. And it's like, well, let's talk, let's put everything where it belongs and let's think about it from a holistic standpoint, not just from this one data value. Exactly. And then I think it's important on who's telling the story because when we look at some of these stats, especially um, in other communities, I'll, I'll just say like the white communities, we often get that context. We get the we get that so and so didn't attend their therapy. They went to a great school. They did X, Y, and Z. But with black people, always oh, daddy was incarcerated, or you know, we get all these negative statistics on top of the statistic that makes us look like we're just doomed from the get go. You know, they don't add the true context. It was like we need more people that look like us to create the statistics. We since we can go into our communities and talk to our people. What's up, grandma? 
Tell me why your why your diabetes <laughs> is wild right now. Where did that come from in the family? Tell us why your blood pressure high. Maybe you just need to walk, but she can't walk because the ground got all the cracks in it. She can't walk because the the speed is too high on the street. You know, she can't walk because you know insert X Y and Z. I think we just need to um true. Maybe this is the time to infiltrate the CDC now and get some uh, um, color up in there. You know what I'm saying? But actually, because <laughs> I think when it's it, when there continues to be a lack of context for years and decades worth of research the majority that may not be in black communities and, and have that context, they just, they just have the like, un, basically like what you were saying, they just have the underlying idea that black people are less than, black people are unhealthy, they choose to be unhealthy, they choose, they choose this lifestyle. Yeah, even a recent example um, in terms of COVID data, as it became more clear over the summer that people of color were dying and falling ill of COVID-19 more than others, even, you know, smack dab on the CDC's website, they have, they have, they kind of allude to it. They say that inequities in the social determinants of health, like <laughs> I've done health impact assessments and I'm still like, what does that even mean? Um, and, um, and they say that it can lead to increased risk for COVID-19 exposure among some racial and ethnic groups. So they didn't say specifically which ones, but they said they were underrepresented. They said they were more likely to live in multi-generational and multi-family households, congregate in living environments. So they're just trying to live, but apparently they shouldn't be doing that because it's COVID, but that's just like how they live and that's their household. They're more, they're more likely to have jobs that require in-person work like agriculture, service industry, and have limited access to healthcare and have underlying conditions like diabetes and obesity. And I just was like, okay, they say all of that, but don't address any of the history of why that is. And it's just like, well, guess black people are just gonna get more COVID and that's just what they say and they leave it there and don't address the context and the history in this country as why those conditions are, are present. Yeah, and I think whenever you see data, there's always, um, you have to think about it in terms of like agency versus environment. And so your agency is like your motivation and your drive and your, your desire to do things. And then your environment is your social environment. I think I wanna bring in some of those numbers that we're talking about just to like put everything in context. So the episode that came out before this, we talked about some of the diabetes statistics and the heart disease statistics. Um, but here we wanna talk about mental health. And so, the data that I'm going to talk about comes from the National Institute for Mental Health. It is from 2017-2018, so it's a little um, older because I'm sure these numbers have risen due to COVID and people having to stay at home. But it found that 7.1% of all United States adults had at least one depressive episode, so one major event that kind of contributed to their depression in 2017. This number was the highest among, I guess we're millennials, 18 to 25-year-olds. Around 13.1% of 18 to 25-year-olds felt some sort of depression in 2017. Um, and of that, 4.5% had that depressive episode hinder their ability to go to work and complete everyday tasks. And so people across this country are really dealing with a lot of mental health struggles and strife. And so then to talk in particular about African-Americans or black people, so 16% 
of African Americans reported having some mental illness, whether that's depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and of those six, of that 16%, around a quarter of them reported that that was a that it became like a serious mental health issue for them, meaning that they couldn't do their daily tasks. Um, another, the other research found that Black and African Americans are less likely than white people to die from suicide, but they're more likely to attempt. And so at some point, someone is intervening or um, trying to save this person from going fully through with their suicide, but more African Americans have thought about it, considered it, and even attempted it, even if they didn't complete the act or move forward. Um, and so I think that is really telling of our, I think that our built environment is not working for us, for us as Americans in general, and particularly for African Americans. It's just some, the way that it's designed and the way that it's operating is not helping us. And I think that's what needs to be changed and worked on. Yeah, and um, so to tie Gutted back into that, um, I thought that 16% was pretty alarming as well, but it also made me think about the people the people from the urban areas that won't even report that they are dealing with some kind of mental issue because like you said they are facing so much pushback from every corner of their built environment it's like look i'm stressed but like i just have to put my head down and either suck it up adjust to it or i have to you know climb over it and everybody don't have that climb like that climb is pretty intense you know you got to be real strongly determined not to say that you know other people aren't but that's a lot to deal with so to hear that only 16 percent reported it is like look we got to figure out like <laughs> what's really going on let's let's have the conversation because either people aren't reporting it because of the stigma or maybe they just don't know you know social media has allowed us to to know a little bit more things but maybe they just still don't know what the signs are and if they do know they may look at it as a weakness so we have to we have to slow down give people a chance to really express and to feel and to really like define what they what they're feeling, what what they're experiencing in that built environment, and so that we can change it up. You know, that's why community outreach is important. Sit down and talk to these people to really figure out what's going on. You know, they'll now, tell you. It was some data that you had sent over to us from Mental Health America that said um, something like fifty eight percent of African-American adults between 18 and 25 did not receive treatment for their mental health illness. And so whether that's for a lack of insurance that covers um, mental health treatment or for a fear of being stigmatized in your community as being someone that's crazy or you don't need to go to therapy, just go to church, God got you, like just pray it out, that type of pull yourself up mentality. And that then adds an extra layer of stress because now you're you're struggling mentally. You're dealing with something that's causing you depression or bipolar disorder. But then you also feel like you can't doing something about it by going to see a therapist is going to, you know, make people look at you like you're crazy or something is wrong with you because you're going to seek help. And I think I'm glad to see in a lot of um, shows that are out now that more people are having those conversations like on TV and showing like it's okay to go to a therapist like because that's what you need sometimes you need it to to get over that hump and to bring yourself back into a better state yeah i'm glad they're having that conversation too but i would love to see people guiding people through like even just the insurance process it's like i may go ahead and accept that i need to see a therapist but i don't want to read this insurance package i just accepted something <laughs> 
or I don't know how to navigate that. And I don't want to look like I'm dumb because I don't know how to navigate it. So how do I ask these questions? You know, um, that adds on stress even more. And I, I just think it'll be dope if we can really take the time to like walk people through that, through that step and through that process to, um, you know, to manage their mental health a little better. So I want to jump in and um, open up the conversation and kind of talk about the collective trauma. So that's a phrase that we've been hearing a lot, um, particularly this summer with all of the Black Lives Matter protests and um, a lot of the basketball players in the bubble were saying like they don't even feel like they should be, you know, going to work because it's so hard for them to focus on anything but the police brutality that we were seeing across the country. And so I want to talk to you, Christy, about some of the work that you're doing around collective trauma and particularly for um, Black people in, in low-income neighborhoods. And, and what are your thoughts on that? And Nemo, jump in, of course, as well. Um. So... With the Gutted Fitness blog, I've tried to um, dive into a little bit of the generational narratives that have been passed down to me and try to like just really work through them, Whether try to figure out whether they're relevant or not, whether they're um, geographically based, and if they are relevant, how I can tie them into who the adult Christy is, if that makes sense. Um, you know, in, in the Black community, we will talk about some stuff. We will bring up the tea, you know, but we don't want to bring it up when it's something personal to us. So I try to go ahead and have those taboo conversations because somebody, somebody feeling me, somebody going through the same thing that I'm going through and then I need some answers. So I try to, through the blog and, um, you know, through my Instagram or whatever, I try to give people the opportunity to really just get into it, to realize that you're not alone when you're dealing with this, you know, whatever trauma you're dealing with, let's talk about it because someone has an answer, someone has a resource and we're not going to clown you for that because we all are here struggling, nappy head and stuff, you know? So, <laughs> Um, that's been the first approach, but my second approach has been through the hood politics conversation when I'm talking with city planners. Like, I always emphasize to them how important it is to get into these communities and have the conversations, but we already know Black people are traumatized from white people, so you can't just expect <laughs> Black people to just fully open up to these white people, or um, not even just white people, government officials, because, you know, they come in all different colors, too. You can't expect people to just black people to just open up to government officials because, you know, black people are so used to being pent down or their words being turned against them or just even being ignored. We have to start building those relationships and start recognizing that we're not data points. We're people. We have to we have to approach each other like people who come from different backgrounds and different experiences. And just because my experience is different doesn't make you any better or worse than I am. We just have to see each other's worldviews for what it is, you know? So um, that's that's what I'm trying to do to address some of the trauma, to provide some solutions. I ain't got all the answers. I haven't lived a lot of different ways <laughs> that people have lived. So I rely on them to tell me their story, tell me their problems, you know, what they think solutions can be. And I'll add my, whatever my expertise is to see if that adds to their solution. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It ain't no big deal, trial and error. But if it does, let's get it going. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's like you mentioned, it's traumatizing, whether that's dealing with people in, people in government institutions trying to ask or get information, but it's also triggering. And I don't think that sometimes those people in positions of power always know what the triggers are and know the history that a group of people, they can have a, they have a common experience that has caused stress in the past. And that common experience was traumatic. Um, and whether that was, that led to distrust 
um, it's all valid. And I think similarly that what we were talking about, it's the like kind of like pull yourself up and get over it mentality. Um, and when you think about mental health, when you tell someone to just get over something that happened in the past, you're assuming that they have a certain level of mental capacity or mental or mental stability without even addressing the very thing that made them mentally unstable in the first place. Exactly. Um, one of my colleagues, we had a project where we had to get into these DC neighborhoods and really talk to them about their connection to um, one of the institutions that used to be big in the neighborhood. And they stopped my colleague at the door. Why you got this zip code? <laughs> I mean, why you got this area code for your phone number? Why you calling me? Because, you know, it's that level of trust. Like, if you're not in the, I'll say what the rappers say, if you ain't in the trenches with me, or at least willing to show up to, um, like, some of our community events and actually rock with us, I'm not going to trust you. If you're just here for some information, you the ops, you a mark, and I'm not going to snitch because that means somebody finna go to jail, or that means somebody benefits finna get taken, or you just finna be on some mess. I might get put out of my house soon. It's important for um, local governments and anyone that's operating in a built environment space to have relationships with the community for the sake of having a relationship. And that relationship shouldn't always be transactional. It shouldn't only see you when it's time to update the master plan or pave the road. Like this relationship should exist because I live here and I'm valuable and I am important to my neighborhood. It shouldn't Period. because you need some information from me so that you can check off your community engagement box. Like you need to have inherent and natural relationships. Period. And you need to pay these people if you're going to be in a, in a space. I'm always a, a fan of, um, of, of paying people for their time. So I had, I got into a, a debate with some other people that do some consulting work and I'm like, well, everybody in this room is getting paid something to participate in this community workshop except for the people who are giving us all of this information about their neighborhood. So we are the um, kind of content experts. We know about planning and planning history and planning law, but they're the context experts and they know about their neighborhood and what works and what doesn't work. And they've been there for much longer than we have. And so they should be getting paid for their time as well. Mm -hmm. What if I told you black folk from the hood can be fit and happy? That even through them cold nights, cairns, and cries in a car, you can still live your best life. Gutty Fitness is a safe space for the hood to heal, evolve, trust, and build, not just as individuals, but as a community. When the Gutter Gang uses the guide to Gutter and In My Mind blog, honey, they walk through life glowing and better than ever. When the hood gets gutted, oh baby, nothing can stop them. So I'll tell you what, get gutted or stay out the way. Stay out the way, stay out the way. Stay out the way. So thinking about community engagement, Christy, I was curious how you've been able to take what you know about the built environment and as it currently stands um, and how you've used that in your training and outreach strategies. Yeah. So really, I would say um, a lot of my outreach strategies came from just how I operated in St. Louis. Um, so with the built environment, really all you could do is sit on a porch <laughs> like because they took away the basketball courts um and if they did have it chances are somebody's doing a drive-by so really if you wanted to get to know somebody you go pull up on their front porch or walk the neighborhood just to see what everyone is doing i do that now um i had a project in dc and i just had to show up just consistently walk through the neighborhood i'll be out there at nine in the morning i see the d boys looking at me i'm like hello good sir how you doing <laughs> i'm just here I know I look different, but what's up? 
So, um, but the more people will see me, um, the more they will go ahead and let their guard down. They know I'm not here to like hurt nothing. They know I'm not here to take nothing. They know I'm an outsider for sure. So they still gonna try me. They still gonna size me up, but at least me getting them familiar with seeing me puts them a little at ease. Um, so I try to do the same thing with gutted. It's like, I'll go ahead and talk about my experiences first. I'll go ahead and be vulnerable with you first so that you feel safe and comfortable opening up to me. You will see, I'll let you ask whatever questions you have for me so that you can see I don't have any ulterior motives. Um, I'm not trying to get over on you. I just really want to help you. And so once you get them talking, it's like, okay, let me hear what they saying, but let me also hear what they're not saying. Let me, let me get to the bottom of it. Let me see um, what they're trying to say with the word choice that they use. And from there, I just see, okay, well, this is the, what I got in my tool belt. This is what I got that can help. And I try, you know, planning, planners, we can get real jargony. <laughs> and I hate it because, like, if somebody rolled up to my grandma talking about some the built environment, she's like, girl, what you talking about? <laughs> what you talking about? So I had to, like, break it all the way down and be like, look, grandma, I know you was trying to get down King's Highway and Natural Bridge, and it's a lot of um, accidents over there, but um, they trying to redo these bus routes so that you can get to work safe, you know? They trying to make sure you're good. They want you to enter into the rear door so you don't get COVID and stuff. So this is what we need to do to change that. If, do you have any any um, concerns about it? You got any oppositions? What do you want them to do? You know, you just got to really frame it as a normal conversation. Um, being Black from a hood, being a young black ghetto girl from the hood, like it is easier to have conversations with other black people across the nation from similar environments. But I, like I said, I still do recognize that those environments are different than the ones that I came from. So I still have to switch up my approach. I can't walk in there like I know everything just because they black. Yeah. Other black people do different things, you know? But I guess because we know the planning profession and um, any most of the professions I deal with the built environment, whether it's architecture, engineering, are predominantly white and predominantly male. And so there is, I'm, I'm, it's a long shot before we can get to a predominantly minority, you know, profession of, of planners. So what do, for the time being, with the field being predominantly white, what are strategies that they can do in their planning offices to better connect with the minority and low-income communities that they interact with because they all can't have a full, you know, person of color staff. So like, what can they do as white people? Because they're not going to get the trust off rip that a black person or a Hispanic person might get, but they have to change some of their policies so that they're more approachable <laughs> and they're more um, connected to the community that they serve. I think um, planning offices need to hire better um Better planners. Okay, this is what I mean by better planners. <laughs> people who are not um, socially awkward or people who are not, um, people who don't run away from having conversations with day-to-day -day people. Like, one, I feel like one of the reasons I was able to be successful out here in D.C. is that white people are pretty progressive out here. Like, they're not as afraid to have conversations for the most part. And yeah. you know, they do have their motives and stuff. Everybody got their motives. But for the most part, people are here for each other out here. That ain't always the case in other cities. So, like, if you do have people like that in your department who are willing and open to have these conversations, make it a requirement that you attend these public meetings and not just to be in a public meeting. Be there to listen and, like, hang out. Go to the um, cookouts. If so-and-so got a baby shower coming up, you know, ask first because, you know, baby showers are important. But, <laughs> you know, try to show up to some of these community events, clothing drives, shoe drives, 
Show them that you actually care and that you want to be involved in whatever they got going. Don't just go to show face and wave, actually participate, do the turkey drives, lead the turkey drives. Um, do you think that planners um, have enough training in community engagement? Because I just finished my you know, master's degree program and I can probably count on my hand the number of times that we had conversations about what it's like to work in a local planning office and like actually engage with everyday people that live in your city or your town or your jurisdiction. And a lot of it is how to do analysis or how to come up with a recommendation, but it's very little on how do you get people engaged in, and interested in the project that you're trying to work on, whether that person is even a city council person or just a community member. Yeah. I feel like the best training you're going to get is just dropping down in that city <laughs> because I, I can't, how do I say this? I can't tell you about a city that I ain't never been in or really interacted with the people. I can speculate just like these um, statistics are doing. They could speculate and make claims all day, but until you touch down in the city and really interact with these people, you ain't, you ain't going to really know what's going on or you're going to take that, um, that stat for what it is. So I do think these schools and stuff do need to just force people to be in their communities and stuff, but don't do it so intrusively, you know, um, have some kind of partnership with these cities to figure out like what are, how people can get involved, volunteer more, you know, things like that. Office, yes, you can. Um, you can provide some kind of equity training or something, you know. But like I said, if you're going to provide an equity training, bring in somebody from the community that you're probably going to end up working with to give you the, the tea on how to communicate with these people. And I but think I, in, in those trainings, they should it should be interactive they should practice like you said having those conversations otherwise you know a lot of times the trainings on equity will be optional the whether or whether you're in planning school if you want to do a studio that involves or an or you know you want to do a final project that involves talking to people or um, engaging those always are like optional and then you get into the mm -hmm. field and then those conversations aren't no, like they don't, a lot of times people, if they're not, if they're used to what they know, they don't know how to have those conversations with people from different backgrounds. Exactly. And I look at it like when you learn a different language, like people, they'll sit and spend hours and years learning Spanish. I'm people. But until you get into the field, like when I was living in Texas, I said, hold on, Spanish real. Hold on. I got to figure it out. I got to figure out how to use this street Spanish. Because if I come in there with this textbook Spanish, they're going to be like, okay, you want to do And Nemo and I have a ton of experience in uh, being out in the streets. Don't we, Nemo? <laughs> I'm triggered. <laughs> I'm triggered. <laughs> yeah, those hot days in Jersey. Yeah, this, you know, and, and I think children, too, are really a part that's missed in in planning and in community engagement because when you think about the stuff you know planning takes a long time to do if we want to cap a highway and turn it into a a bike boulevard that's at least a 10 to 15 year project between securing the funding and, and getting it completed and so interviewing the 55 year old or the 65 year old i mean that's helpful they're going to use it but in 15 years they're going to mm -hmm. be either deceased or they're going to be like 85. So it's right. really important to get in communication with the sixth graders and the fifth graders and, and, and start to ask them, like, how does this space work for you? Because this is going to be your future. This is what you're going to be. When you become an adult, this is what's going to be here. And I'm sure right. if you would have asked us when we were younger, like, oh, would you want your community to be designed so that you have to use a car to get around? Or would you like to be able to ride your bike? 
you know, and we're, because now we're in the adult and now we all have to have a car regardless of where we live to get around outside of some parts of DC and, and some parts of New York and some parts of um, San Francisco. But for the most part, Americans across the country have to have a car to successfully maneuver or they're spending extra time, you know, transporting them, transporting themselves. So I think it's important to involve children as well in the, the planning process. Yeah. The last thing that I would add about um, just the outreach process, um, my colleague, she said it best, like, sometimes we kind of got to throw out those timelines because, like you just said, Jasmine, like, these projects are going to take a minute. And then you still got to give people a time, a chance to evolve through whatever experiences they're going through. So, yeah, they might have thought they wanted X, Y, and Z, but really they wanted something else. So they was reaching for something else in that conversation. So you got to give the community time to pivot to really understand like what the project is and then provide valuable feedback to it and then pivot, you know, pivot as necessary. And that's how you end up with more sustain sustainable projects. Like we, we can go on. I'm gonna just leave that there. <laughs> so I want to hear more about the work that you do under hood politics and let's talk to us about how that came about what it means and what are some of the things that you you do? Yeah, but hood politics, um, I've always said, I didn't know planning was a field, but I always said I wanted, wanted to be the intermediary or mediator between the hood and the government because growing up, I never heard about one single public meeting. Never. I didn't know that stuff was happening until I started my graduate degree, and that was in Texas. And even then, I didn't even hear about these public meetings. So I was like, look there's a disconnect somewhere and in St. Louis all these changes being made but no one is providing input other than the people that know about it so I was like well let me let me figure out the lingo um so once I got involved with planning you know I understood what was going on more and I was like look it's time for me to to educate my people on how they can be involved in their city politics but also school these planners who think they know everything on <laughs> what this neighborhood wants what they're trying to do who they are as a neighborhood and who they want to be in the future as a neighborhood. You know, um, when it comes to gentrification and stuff, you know, that's our buzzword right now. People, people do want better neighborhoods. They want better communities. They want to see improvements too, but you're not going to put big mama out of her house in the process. You're not going to put um, a property that's been in our, in our generation. I mean, in our family for generations, you're not going to just take that from us. Now, I mean, we already know, like some people do sell out their land and all that, you know, we ain't gonna get into that because that can get deep too. But yeah, because some people really do need the money. Like when you, yeah. if someone is coming, <laughs> offering you one hundred seventy-five thousand for your grandma's house that's falling apart or whatever, and you right. know you got rent to pay tomorrow, you got bills due, your kids need X, Y, and Z. It's mm -hmm. easier. I don't fault people for doing it because if you really need the money, you gotta take the money. But yeah. I do ask people to really consider, like, that developer is coming to give you 175 but he's going to flip it for 500 yeah. So value is worth more. And if you can, if you have the financial capability to hold on to it, I, I ask people to hold on all the time because it's worth so much more than they're coming to offer you. And right. you got to hold on to it. But I didn't want to interrupt you, but keep going. No, you're right. That's so... In that conversation, I try to make sure I paint, I storytell, I love storytelling. I try to storytell what certain actions, um, what they can lead to in the future if they decide to do X, Y, and Z. I do that for people um, in the urban areas, but then I do that for politicians or uh, just planners too. Like, yeah, you want to bring in this um, bike lane 
But this church said they didn't even want this. And so you're about to get some riots in a minute. <laughs> or, you more, or you're going to get more division within the city. You're going to get some more high heads and you're going to get somebody that's going to pull up on you. So what do you want to do? Is this bike lane really that important? You know? So um, I try to... I try to teach planners how to have conversations with people from er urban areas without putting them in a position to think that they know everything because don't come over in my set, set tripping. Don't come over here thinking you finna tell me about me. But at the same time, I'm trying to tell urban people like, we ain't trying to tell you about you, but we see some things from a different perspective that could help you out. So let's meet at the table. Let's talk about it. If it gets rowdy, it gets rowdy, but we cool. <laughs> we can come back together and still find some middle ground. Um, cause that's hood politics. That's how you do it in the hood. You're going to get, you're going to get mad at somebody. <laughs> you're going to fight somebody, but you're going to come back and, you know, build something lasting and sustainable out of love and out of hard work. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to, to start to close this out and think about some of the things that people listening can relate to both how hood politics can be visualized in the built environment we talked earlier about the importance of community bonds. And so what would be the kind of the story you would tell people um, of how both community bonds can improve mental health and how hood politics is one way to tap into that? Oh yeah. So um, in St. Louis, there is this plot of land that's, there's a lot of vacant land in St. Louis period. So, um, but the community bonding there has um, transformed one of the vacant lots into like a chess area. So that's where the older generation and the younger generation come together to bond over chess. And I'm not sure, if, have y'all ever played chess before? No, I've never played chess before. Gotcha. <laughs> and you didn't say spades, so I was like... <laughs> I'm one of the few black people that cannot play spades. I, I can't either. Essentially, it's a gathering space to like, if you do want to play spades and dominoes and even chess, like this is an opportunity to, um, to build social capital, to, to bond as a community and to, um, you know, use that built environment, even though it was, it was vacant, you know, it wasn't nothing going on with it. They went ahead and used that built environment to, to improve some of the issues that was going on in that city, even if it was just through chess. That's an opportunity for people to release their mental health. Um, mental issues, um, express their feelings, express their frustrations, all of that. So um, in hood politics, like when you have a safe space to be able to express like that, you will express and you will be able to come to some to some solutions to those problems. Whereas otherwise, you just holding everything, bottling it in, and you just taking that baggage at every step that you go. So you're gonna you're gonna be popping off on people. You're gonna be um, frustrated. You're gonna miscommunicate. You're gonna have high blood pressure, <laughs> like whatever, whatever ailment comes out of that. So, um, hood politics is essentially learning how to deal with people. Learning how accepting that you have a different background and accepting that other people have a different background, but that there's middle space that you that can be safe for you both to have a, a good, genuine, and productive conversation. I want to add before we start to close out just a final piece about the built environment and mental health. Um, I know we talked not necessarily anecdotally, but we talked about examples, high level examples of how the built environment can influence your mental health in terms of stress and all those different things. But this has actually been measured by a lot of different people and the data points have been proven. And so there was a study in USC, which is the University of Southern California, that looked at um, sixth graders between 
2012, so when they went through 6th, 7th, and 8th grade across eight different communities in Southern California, some suburban, some rural, and some urban, and they found that um, near roadway air pollution was the strongest um, factor that contributed to student stress levels. So they lived in an area that had um, a lot of air pollution, either near an arterial roadway or a highway. They were more stressed. And if they lived in an area that had what they call artificial light at night, which is like a bright billboard or a lot of buildings that are lit up at nighttime or sirens and near a hospital or something like that, that also significantly increased the student stress levels over this three-year period. And so this is just another example and kind of evidence or proof rather that the built environment in terms of lighting, in terms of access to green space, in terms of um, air pollution from a highway really does contribute and you can measure it have an impact on your physical and mental health and so these students their mental health was tracked but then they're also their grades were tracked and so the students that had higher or worsened mental health um, by taking these tests scored worse on exams and things like that in school so it translates overall so if you live in an environment that's stressful that's impacting your mental health is impacting your physical health and is impacting your productivity whether that's at work or at school and so those are some of the final takeaways that i i wanted to bring into the conversation that's a fact because these dc streets and these sirens do have me stressed out honey jasmine and i thought about this episode um with a lot of the stay-at-home orders um, and kind of being told to, you know, stay at home, but also if you are going to go outside, go walk, take a walk around your neighborhood. Not everyone's neighborhood looks the same, you know, not everybody's um, environment is conducive to get that exercise and do those things to stay healthy in the middle of a global pandemic. And so if you're feeling shifts in your mood, if you're feeling like, you know, you might, things that you used to enjoy doing, you might not feel like enjoying this year because of all the things that have happened, it might not just be you. It's, it can be environmental. It can be the built mm -hmm. environment itself. It can be the things that you're looking at every day that are not aiding to a better well-being or better quality of life. Um, and so hopefully, you know, we'll have resources that we use in this episode in the show notes to, to take a look at and, and to read up and continue to have those conversations in friend spaces and family spaces and at work about how we all can be in those meetings moving forward about making a difference about what our built environment looks like moving forward. Absolutely. I wanna say um, some examples of things that you guys can, or people in general can do, particularly if you live in an environment that you don't feel is conducive to your mental health, like you don't like walking around for whatever reason, or you know that there, the park that you wanna go to, the park is not maintained really well, or there's high crime levels, or for whatever reason, you don't feel like your built environment um, gives you enough space to be yourself and operate. You can download a ton of meditation applications. There are tons of free um, therapy sessions that various county health departments offer. And something cool that I just started doing was um, changing my screensaver to like a view of like the ocean or beach or something. And like, I found that it helps me when I'm like in a super stressed out environment. I just switch to my screensaver, my wallpaper, my computer, and I just kind of zone out there. So um, that's that's the kind of final takeaway for me as well. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much, Christy, for being our first guest on the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. We're super happy to have you and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation today. 
Um, and so for everyone listening, um, thank you. And we drop episodes every other Tuesday. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod and stay tuned. And, you know, if you want to connect with us, feel free to click the links in our bio. We have a contact form or you can email us as well. Peace out, y'all. See ya.